Hi, I'm Trip. I spent the first part of the 21st century as a film snob, rejecting any sort of mainstream comedy. And I'm Ross. I'm slowly, film by film, taking Trip through the films he sadly dismissed or smartly avoided until now. Welcome to A Trip Through Comedy, a podcast examining studio comedies from around the turn of the century. Trip, our exit today, and our 30th in total, has us searching for stolen gold at the end of the Gulf War. This week, we are discussing Three Kings, written and directed by David O. Russell with a story by John Ridley. More on that in a little bit. The film takes place at the end of the Gulf War. While searching an Iraqi soldier, Sergeant First Class Troy Barlow and Private First Class Conrad Vig find a map hidden on him. Consulting with their staff sergeant, Chief Elgin, they determine that this map is a hidden is of hidden bunkers maintained by Saddam Hussein. These bunkers possibly contain stolen gold bullion from Kuwait. Their but not the a- kind of bullion that you make soup with. No, don't no. get confused by that. Okay. Yes, very big difference. Their meeting is interrupted by Major Archie Gates, a Special Forces member who is two weeks away from retirement. He comes up with the idea that they go themselves to steal the gold and make millions. Gates has another soldier distract the reporter that he is detailed to, Adriana Cruz, so that they can go on this mission. However, their plan goes sideways quickly when they discover that the bunker contains not only items, but prisoners who are part of the rebellion against Saddam. The group cannot simply look the other way, as one of the hostages is brutally murdered in front of her family. Gates and company decide to take action and break the ceasefire in place. While attempting to flee with the gold and the prisoners, they are attacked. Most of them are saved uh, by the rebels, while Barlow is taken captive. Barlow is tortured by Iraqi soldiers, while his fellow soldiers make a deal with the rebels to help them free him in exchange for some of the gold and passage to Iran. They are able to free Barlow, but discover more prisoners in need of rescuing. Furthermore, Vig is killed and Barlow is seriously injured. Realizing that they are in need of help, Gates calls in a favor to get transportation, brings in uh, Adriana so she can report on the story. The army finds them before they can help the refugees and arrests them. Gates, Barlow, and Elgin make a deal. They agree to turn over the gold in exchange for the army helping the refugees across the border. In the end, the army helps them across, and all three soldiers are honorably discharged thanks to the reporting on the story. So Trip, did this movie still pack a punch for you, or did the satire feel stale? Yeah, this movie still definitely packs a punch. I remember I saw it in 1999. I really liked it then. I feel like it kind of disappeared from the conversation pretty quickly there. Um, And I think it almost packs more of a punch now. Looking at it, you know, it's a 1999 movie talking about the first Gulf War. And we have had a whole lot of events in that part of the world since then that I think only make this movie that much more powerful in its satire and what it's saying when you know even more than they knew at the time what was really going to happen in this region and where we were heading absolutely i i think this is a really really fascinating movie to watch even more so as you're saying in a post you know iraqi freedom world in a you know post 9-11 world yeah right Mm -hmm. this is 1999 and so to have this in a specific movie that it's very interesting to watch we talked a little bit about this last week about how there's not many first gulf war movies the ones Mm -hmm. we can think of are like this and jarhead but both of them grapple with this idea of the gulf war kind of being this 
mission that ends very quickly and a mm-hmm. lot of the soldiers seemingly not knowing what to do with themselves. Yeah. Um, this is a or movie they keep that's... asking themselves in this movie, like, what were we really doing? <laughs> like, yes. what, what was our point here? Absolutely. And I think there's a very interesting kind of through line of people and, you know, the soldiers that are in this movie, some of whom possibly did serve in Vietnam, but mm-hmm. the younger ones and the reservists, who most of these are reservists supposed to be in the movie, um, you know, mm-hmm. Ice Cube, Mark Wahlberg, and Spike Jones uh, and uh, Jamie Kennedy are all reservists. Mm-hmm. Clooney is a, a lifer. And um, but there definitely seems to be a connection to like Vietnam War movies. These mm-hmm. are people that grew up on Vietnam War movies and that the U.S. comes in and the U.S. goes and this this kind of thing. And they get there and they don't really, you know, the, the beginning of this movie, it's more of like, so what did we like? We didn't see anything. We don't have yeah. any action. We don't. You know, there's this sense of like wanting to do something and they find very quickly that doing something is not as glamorous i think as they think it's going to be yeah no and then you know they're being told over here to save people but then they're not allowed to save people and they always have those questions and i think back there's a couple moments but there's one in that village scene that's so so well constructed um where they're in the village and they're getting ready to leave and the mother is like please don't go please don't go you don't know what's going to happen if you leave and maybe the satire is a little ham-fisted there but man watching that post-afghanistan and post you know iraqi freedom and with those 2024 goggles on you can really see like yeah this film is saying something not only about these soldiers, but about something larger and geopolitical, even than I think a lot of those Vietnam comedies would have. Yeah. I mean, look, there, as you kind of point out, there are some parts of this movie that are very much not subtle. Mark mm-hmm. Wahlberg being tortured by claiming that he's going to, that they're trying to stabilize the region and then literally having oil poured down his throat. Yeah, like, no. subtlety is not always this movie's um, strong suit. But but I, I don't think it, I don't think it has to be, right? No. Because it's a sort of movie that is in your face, right? And it is just the style of it. And I mean, David O. Russell has never really been a subtle filmmaker. That's not his thing. But I think there are more, there are subtle ways to look at this. But this is a film that is going to be, it announces from the beginning, we are going to be in your face and we are going to be addressing it. And I think that a lot of times is what, if this is the quote unquote first Gulf War comedy, or maybe the only one at this point, but you know, when you're paving that path, you can't be subtle, right? Like you, like we need to break the gate down and then we'll let other people have their more subtle takes on it. Absolutely. So while we're here and before we get into the cast, we, we should probably discuss a little bit about the the kind of writing and making of this film, which has a bit of a controversy with it. So mm-hmm. the film, as I stated on the top and I said we get back to this, there is a story credit that's given to John Ridley and the screenplay is done to David O. Russell. Supposedly, mm-hmm. John Ridley wrote a script. It was under a different title. Um, it was, the basis was a kind of a Gulf War heist movie that he supposedly wrote in seven days and sold it in 18. The name of the movie, uh, I'm trying to remember or 
something on here at the time, but he, he basically sold, sells this script. Supposedly, David O. Russell, when they were looking for movies to do for him, the studio gives him this list of scripts that they had bought and goes like, hey, you know, we have these lists of scripts. It was called Spoils Award, according to Wikipedia. That's what it was. And according to David O. Russell, all he saw was the name and just a log line of like heist, heist set in the Gulf War. And he was like, oh, that's awesome. And then he just writes his own script. He claims he never really read John Ridley's script. He basically just wrote his own kind of thing. John Ridley obviously gets told uh, eventually that his script got sold, right? That is being made. But it, mm-hmm. essentially, he's shut out from the whole process. And eventually, like, finds out a year later that they've just made this movie and it's not really, you know, he claims a lot more of it is used than it, than David O. Russell. There's a whole dispute, mm-hmm. which leads to uh, Warner Brothers kind of brokering a deal that he gets a story by credit. But uh, supposedly Ridley has blocked. David O. Russell wanted to release the script as a book mm-hmm. in a book form. And Ridley has blocked that. There's a lot of contentions. I mean, John Ridley, who is an Academy Award winner, he won for 12 Years a Slave. But, but his 12 years a slave he also had a lot of controversy over that screenplay yep he and that director steve mcqueen were fighting over writing credits for that john ridley holds on to sole ownership of that screenplay both of them to the point where neither of them think the other one in their acceptance speeches um however did you know john ridley if you watch that clip walks past steve mcqueen on his way to a Except his Oscar, but do you know who he hugs? No, David O. Russell. Oh, who is there as the writer director of Silver Linings Playbook? Interesting because so, they seem to not have a good relationship. He also wrote U Turn two years earlier, which uh-huh. is based on his. Well, or I should say, it's based on his book, and supposedly yeah. also had problems with Oliver Stone. <laughs> it yeah. seems that John Ridley has very. At Entertainment Weekly wrote a, uh, an article that we can link to um, yeah. at mm-hmm. the time talking about kind of the, the problems yes. that were going on with the script. Of However, and not just, you know, John Ridley seems to have this problem over and over again. I mean, David O. Russell is not known as the easiest person to work <laughs> no. with. And I believe there are stories where he and George Clooney get in some bad fights on the set of this movie. Um, of course, there's all sorts of stuff about I Heart Huckabees. Oh yeah, um, which, which is, which his, is next his, movie, his next movie, his next movie, um, and lots of stress on the on the um, set of that, and also Oliver Stone and Steve McQueen are both known to be um, very sort of stern people, and yes. so we we should know that there are two sides were... to every story, and Absolutely. you know I think there is something that John Ridley keeps coming into this issue over and over again, but obviously we don't know the full story. Absolutely, and I should note that the Wikipedia article has an entire section entitled Conflicts. So, yes, yes this movie seems to have a lot of things. And by the way, this is a this is a movie that you watch. It, there is real money behind this. There is all oh, the yeah. action sequences are so well done. Mm. It is, um, it is like a very well done film. But yeah, David O. Russell at this point had really made two movies he had done spanking the monkey in 94 he had done flirting with disaster in 96 two mm-hmm. very different movies right smaller movies yeah i would say more more comedy focused in general mm-hmm. and he does this doesn't direct another movie for five years till i heart huckabees so yeah he you know does this the what held me back, actually, watching – I had seen this movie before, um, and I hadn't seen it in several years. I will say the style at times kind of left me a little cold. Some of these slow-mo stuff, which is a very kind of like late 90s things, 
But the oh. slow-mo and some of the like things where I was like, all right, you don't need this. <laughs> maybe maybe more than anything else we've watched, this movie just screams 1999 in the style. And it seems very much when you think of that 1999 in film, right? The greatest film year ever or whatever you want to call it. And this is the movie that seems to fit into the being John Malkovich, Matrix, American Beauty, right? Movies that are changing the land landscape for us at the time this movie seems much more akin to those than a lot of what we watch i have to say i tend to be very averse to slow motion and that sort of style it really worked for me in this movie though because i think it clarifies things and i think there's the point that like all of this stuff happens in like two seconds right that like this war is months of boredom and then suddenly everything like explodes at once and so i think that russell is really smart in boiling down all of that chaos and like let's let you watch step by step right let's let you see exactly what is happening in this slow motion and so it actually didn't bother me as much as i thought it was right and he sets it up right at the beginning right that slow motion of this is what happens when a bullet enters you and let's kind of go in there a really cool again i think i said last week the only thing i remembered from this movie was that sequence of what happens when a bullet goes in you so i guess i took some lesson in the last 25 years from this movie there we go i will kind of then bridge that because the man who's narrating that portion talking to this uh is one mr george clooney Mm-hmm. who we've kind of mentioned already, and I think this is a great way to talk about. It is called Three Kings, and they usually highlight the three performances, but really it's four people. Mm-hmm. It is George Clooney, it's Mark Wahlberg, it's Ice Cube, and it's Spike Jones. And Spike Jones yeah. has a much bigger part in this movie than maybe the advertising will will make it. Can, can we just say, though, before you move on, Ross, yes. because if you go on Letterboxd, there is this whole trend of people complaining about how the title of the movie avoids Spike Jones and how it is not fair. The title Three Kings has nothing to do with the people who are involved in this. It is not saying these three characters are the three kings. It is a reference to a story in the Bible, right? And it definitely is playing up the allegory here of, you know, the three kings came to visit the baby Jesus and they brought gifts, including gold. And really the story of this movie is that these guys are giving gold to these villagers and these rebels and helping them get to a safe place. So Eventually. Eventually. (laughs) Eventually, right? And that they are helping out, right? But like that is their their journey there, is that they are sort of becoming the, the three kings. And so um, it is not a snub at Spike Jones. It is not casting anybody out. Um, yes, it's it's metaphorical. I think it's but- more of who they were marketing, which makes sense if you're the marketing people, why you're marketing these three as your stars, right? Spike Jones, who in general is not really known for his acting. He is mostly obviously a very good director. And of director- course is nominated for an oscar this year for directing being john malkovich his first movie like yes and really one of the quintessential 1999 films absolutely these three performances and we can also obviously talk more also about spike jones's performance i think it's very interesting and to me watching this movie once again i'm reminded george clooney's a capital s star like you watch him in this movie i'm not sure it fully works without him i think he absolutely brings a Mm -hmm competency like in the sense of he's the one person in all of this that seems to really understand 
because he is the lifer, quote unquote, he is the person in the special mm-hmm. forces. He has a lot more knowledge. He's a lot cool under pressure. Yeah. But even with that comes this beating heart of also, you know, as you said, the what are we doing here? Yeah. He's, his other great speech is this idea about necessity. And you can look at this entire movie as this idea of, he says, the reason we're going to be able to get this gold is Saddam's, it's all about necessity. For him, it's now about quelling the rebellion. I don't care about the gold. We mm-hmm. will be able to do this because they're now balancing this kind of act of like, what's more important to me right now? Yeah. And um, at the same token, that is what ends up kind of putting the necessity is what ends up kind of putting the dust in the machine for him because then he realizes that there's more here and he's been looking for a reason as to why they are here and he finds one Mm -hmm. something for them to actually do and Clooney by the way appeared in another movie we have covered this year uh he does appear in South Park bigger longer and uncut but this year is probably a big bigger year for him noted because this is the year he leaves ER Mm -hmm. you know which really kind of blossomed his star He's following this up the year before he's in Out of Sight and the Thin Red. Mm-hmm. This is where and, – and the next year he does Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, The Perfect Storm. This is where George Clooney is now going to start taking a leap yeah. in terms of – you know, yes, he had tried with the Batman and Robin two years earlier. Less said about that, the better. Um, <laughs> but this is where it now becomes like George Clooney is going you could almost see in this movie and not to take he's amazing and out of sight i I, yes i don't know if i had seen out of sight when i saw this in the movie theater or if i saw that i know i saw it at some point on dvd but like i remember thinking like this was the first real like george clooney could be a movie star role right like he feels like he has really embraced something and it's interesting too as you watch it you can see so much of like future george clooney of like like he is a list star with a real like international conscience like he wants to be doing stuff that says something about the world which of course has been a huge part of his last 20 years right of making these interesting films i mean you could also see like how much of this movie feels like a warm-up to playing danny ocean and it's like okay yes like (laughs) i'm starting i'm starting to get that sort of you know persona in this and i'm a person who you could put me up against some other big movie stars and i'm still gonna control the screen and i can still you know lead them around um, well and several years later he'll win an oscar for syriana and yeah. you could look at this movie and kind of see his character in syriana it's like this is his character years later like even more haggard like yes. even more now like run down by everything that's going on you know in the middle east like what he's seen what he's experienced and has now mm-hmm. even driven him more you know darker it's like but yeah clooney absolutely the social conscious roles that he's taken where he's mm-hmm. used his charisma and star power in very interesting ways um yeah. this movie definitely you know he he hadn't done something like this i guess the closest is Maybe the thin red line, but I don't think he's in it that much. No, he really pops up in one scene at the very end. Yeah, the Peacemaker failed. But, like, this is the movie that then kind of starts that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And I do think he's the best performance in this movie. I I think there's there's no question for me that he is. I think he's given maybe the most complex character too, in a non-obvious way, you know, that Mark Wahlberg definitely, his character takes a journey. Um, and I think Mark Wahlberg is really funny in this movie. Yes. Um, I, I enjoyed him a lot. He and David O. Russell, two very problematic people, but 
tend to bring out the best in each other because yes. I think I Heart Huckabees might be Mark Wahlberg's best performance. And, um, you know, um, of course, the, the fighter relies a lot on Mark Wahlberg. Um, but yeah, I think George Clooney gets this journey, but it is not obvious one and he plays it with such movie star charisma but also in a very muted way that he doesn't feel like he has to be dominating all the time yeah um which is such an important skill right it's very similar again to what he does in oceans 11 right look you have a whole lot of bigger personalities around you and let them do their thing and you're going to be the movie star glue who holds it all together yeah i mean for Wahlberg, to me it's i think he may have actually given his best performance by this point which is boogie nights um, which came out two years earlier Wahlberg's kind of in an interesting part of his career too, right? He has kind of, you know, started to kind of make more serious movies. He's done The Basketball Diaries. He's done Fear. You know, he's the next year he's going to do The Yards and star again with Clooney in The Perfect Storm. Mm-hmm. He's, they use him well in this movie. They use him well and his arc is also, as you said, it's gaining a conscience as well. Yeah, It's in a different way. Because he has the connection of he's just had a baby. There's, you know, his wife is pregnant. Uh, the scene of him calling home is really good. It it's might a- be my favorite scene in this movie, I think. Just because it captures the absurdity of this war and of, like, everything that's going on. And also, I think the humanity of that scene is so beautiful also. Absolutely. I think it's it's a really, really, really good scene. And it shows, again, like, where Wahlberg can be used effectively Mm -hmm. you know it it can work and then you have ice cube as this kind of like of the three kind of again if you're looking at the poster ice cube who is you know himself you know he's not coming off some big movies necessarily in 98 and that year he's also in a movie called thicker than water i couldn't tell you a single thing about it um but has already been in boys in the hood he's done friday he's done higher learning he's done anaconda arguably actually of the three of them he's probably had the biggest movies like you yeah. could make the case that he's he's been in the biggest things or or more to the the most well-liked things i guess batman yeah. and robin is technically the biggest one of these movies. well and i think it has had i mean the longest career of the three of them in movies really yes you know um in so that it's, it spans the whole decade but i would argue this movie doesn't have as much for him to do i no. don't think oddly enough i think spike jones has more to do in this movie mm-hmm. than than ice cube I, I mean ice cube is really there for for personality and um I, I think it says something that of the four-man team the the black actor has the least journey and the least to do and is there more just to sort of be the heavy yeah and also it's, it's point, underwritten and sad and also point out at many points how uh language is used specifically and the racial dynamics that are Mm -hmm. at play here especially with you know you're in the middle east how a lot of these very white soldiers are talking about middle eastern people throughout this Mm -hmm. movie and pointing out that like hey you know this is really problematic how you're using language and that it's borderline on also just being racist against black people and by borderline i mean absolutely (laughs) (laughs) um it it is it's a very interesting thing, but I don't think they do enough with it. No. Um, it does also, though, on a separate note, the running bit between him and Mark Wahlberg about uh, does Lexus make a convertible is kind of a very funny, yeah. you know. He's very he's very funny in yeah. in the part, but it, it definitely feels like the other characters feel to sort of transcend stereotype 
of soldiers, and he very much fits into the black sidekick in war film stereotype. Except for the fact, spoiler alert, that he survives at the end, which, yeah. you know. It doesn't um, even get guess, injured. He doesn't no, get injured. No. Yeah. He's the only one. That, like, yeah, that, um, yeah, he, he manages that. Uh, maybe that's the John Ridley uh, influence here a little bit still. I don't know. Yeah. But definitely, um, yeah, he has the least to do, though he is very funny in, in this. Yeah. Spike Jones to me, if we're going with stereotypes, probably is the one that falls most into a stereotype. Like yeah. in the sense mm-hmm. of like his character. But I do think he's very interesting. And I think he, they try to give him a little bit more to do. But he mm-hmm. is very, his character is written as a bad stereotype at yeah. many a point. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point of also when everyone's thinking about the jobs that they have outside, he does not have a job. It's literally yeah. just him in a pit shooting I think stuffed animals on a on a burned out car. Yeah. Um, but it is a very interesting to watch Spike Jones perform because we don't see it very often. No, and he, again, he's not bad. He he's pretty good. <laughs> like, no, he's not. You know, I kind of wish yeah. that he they people did use it more. Like he's he works. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing this and sort of you know as I figured out like oh wait a minute this guy also directed being John Malkovich. I was like oh wow he's really gonna like go places like he seemed to be almost the breakout star of the film and then yeah he does almost nothing past this except a couple uncredited roles here and there where he pops up and stuff doesn't he i feel like so. he appears in like wes anderson like does he do um Fantastic no i mean he does a lot of his own stuff he pops up in moneyball uh, he right, pops he up does, in yes. The Wolf of Wall Street. I don't remember him in that. Uh, of course, just uh, a couple years ago, he had a small part in my beloved Babylon. Yeah! Um, this is a pro-Babylon podcast here. I mean, most of his acting credits are taken up by um, jackass appearances. Because, yes. of course, he's he's tied into that group. Um, he was he a has, skateboard director. and he ha- um, Yeah, he has a fascinating career just he's a very interesting the multiple ways that he has gone yeah it's yeah. um he is absolutely a very very interesting uh person in terms of how he's dealt with his career but and i and by the way would hope that he directs something soon he hasn't directed anything like a movie he did direct um like the beastie boys documentary that came out recently mm-hmm. for netflix but but um, since winning the Oscar for her, he hasn't yeah. really directed anything. And as exciting as Tripp and Ross read Wikipedia filmographies yes. out loud, <laughs> Ross, uh, we talked about those four people. Is there anyone else that you want to uh, to highlight here as as a standout beyond the, the central team of four? Yeah, I, I wanted to bring up Cliff Curtis. Cliff mm-hmm. Curtis, uh, who is, uh, I believe, a New Zealand actor and is playing uh, Amir, is eventually kind of the leader of the rebel group that helps them he Mm -hmm. gives a really good performance and Mm -hmm. he kind of becomes the face to some extent of this world that they're leaving behind i believe he mentions also at one point that he originally was in america at one point and moved back Mm -hmm. um in order to basically start up hotels and has watched as they've all been destroyed due to these bombings And then the same people that come in here to try to help them are basically all just leaving and not really Mm -hmm. doing it. He's very sharp. He's very smart. He picks up immediately with the idea of like, so so I'm to understand that the the U.S. Army sent four people to go recover this gold (laughs) with no backup and no anything. You're absolutely stealing this gold. 
And he becomes, to some extent, the thing to remind you that, like, regardless of you know what they decide to do here, uh, these individuals stay here, right? The U.S. Mm-hmm. Army is about to leave and abandon a lot of these these individuals that who they've all tried to inspire to rise up and rise up against Saddam. And then they do that, and then they're like, all right, so goodbye, everybody. <laughs> like, y'all look like you're having fun over here. Mm-hmm. And the reason he, he wants them to go to Iran is basically saying, we are dead here. Mm-hmm. We're dead if we stay here. It is a very good performance. It is uh, it, it is to a way to kind of give you as the audience this kind of viewpoint into the world that is drawing them and that they are being awoken to to some extent of mm-hmm. what's happening around them despite you know what they've been told to some extent by the military industrial complex of like why they're there and what's going on and what to do. So yeah, mm-hmm. I, I really want to point him out. He's a he is a really good character actor who's appeared in many he, things. He is. It was it was nice to see him pop up here um and i think it leads to a a better conversation and something that really struck me watching this movie is that it gives a lot more care and attention to all of the iraqi characters than i think i expected it to based on sort of the time period of the movie that i think um while the movie is definitely told through american eyes and a very sort of western way a lot of movies like this just turn the iraqis or the arabs into just a sort of hey here's a collection of nameless people, right? And this movie takes some care to give them some dimension and to let us hear their side of things. And I think Cl- Cliff Curtis is the vocal spout for a lot of that. He he carries a lot of that on him, but the movie is really smart in that way. It's, it's very interesting. So also we should note that many of the Iraqi roles in this movie were played by actual Iraqi refugees. He, he's the only non-Arab actor who plays, because I went down the rabbit hole, um, because it's the one thing I'll say against this performance, is it did just bother me. And perhaps it's because sort of, I know who Cliff Curtis is. I know that he is Maori, um, that he's the only one who is not actually Arab, who plays one of those Iraqi parts. Um, But yeah, because everyone else is filled in. And I think even Syed Tagmawi, I think I'm saying that right. Who plays the the head Iraqi interrogator, who's a wonderful Moroccan French actor, who is another one of those who plays these sorts of roles all the time. Even that character, the quote unquote bad guy, and the one who tortures Mark Wahlberg, I think is given some complexity and given some at least attention to let's understand the way that these this side of the fight feels. Yeah. I think it's, it's really great. Uh, we should also point out, uh, did not realize this until now as I'm looking at the Wikipedia article. Oh, you didn't You didn't recognize baby Aaliyah Shawcott? No, I didn't! Yes. I was supposed to say, yes. Cliff Curtis's daughter in the movie is Aaliyah Shawcott, whose father is uh, from Baghdad. So Yes, yeah, yes. she's a, she's half I, a half Iraqi uh, yes. actress. Of course, so wonderful. Just a couple years from now, and she'll be on uh, Arrested Development, doing some very different stuff. But is really, I mean, her entire part is cut to sweet little kid crying and like but is very emotionally effective in this movie like she's absolutely she's very good so yeah so trip what what part uh supporting part did you want to highlight um yeah i 
kind of another section of the movie that we haven't talked about um, because there's a lot going on in this movie. Uh, (laughs) I I have to highlight Nora Dunn, who plays the CNN reporter who is embedded with this group. And so um, we sort of meet her right at the start of the film. Such a big part of the first Gulf War was that idea that it is on TV 24 hours a day and that we are seeing live footage from it. I remember being, you know, my family just always having it on and always watching sort of what's going on. And so she uh, is embedded with them. She figures out what is going on. Um, with the gold. She has a very combative relationship with George Clooney. Um, and so she just is, in some ways, like the quintessential 90s version of the 30s wisecracking female reporter, like a Rosalind Russell in His Girl Friday. Um, she, Nora Dunn, always a joy to see. And she, you know, hits those wisecracks really well. Um, then also sort of goes on a journey of her own, I think, and uh, ends up sort of saving the day for all of them by being present and the power of journalism. But I think she's really funny. She and Jamie Kennedy end up on their own adventure because he uh, is the decoy. So he drives her in the wrong direction. And um, she, the two of them have a really funny back and forth together. And um, I, I, while I was always sad to be lose leaving that core group i was always happy to be jumping to her side of the story and i think she's just she's a delight in this movie we, we should say she is not with cnn i believe it's like oh, no. nbs they create oh, yes, like I'm a, sorry yeah yes. they create some sort of fake news thing for her but she is great i mean and Nora dunn is one of those great supporting like character actresses who really does great comedy. She has a very funny interactions with a fellow journalist who is also seemingly around. She's played by Judy Greer. Uh, yeah, another another young Judy Greer, who of course will sort of take a big step up with Arrested Development. In absolutely, a years when um, she pops up on that. So absolutely a very fun thing, and and an important part also, as you just said about the. The, the first Gulf War being so much on television. A lot of this is kind of, inf- you know, kind of embedded in this story about how the military is trying to control the narrative. The military is giving the access to all these journalists, but trying to only show them, right, yeah. what will be good. And in the end, it's her reporting, right, that saves the three of them about how they're trying to save this these um, refugees so it's yeah. it's absolutely there, there's a couple great scenes where like you see her doing a report and then you cut and like the people inside the bunker on the other side of the wall are watching her report from outside of where they are yes. and like just the way that war has changed I think it's is. the the pelican scene where they find she's getting so frustrated because they're in these stories these are already been done and then her and jamie kennedy just looking at these these poor birds like stuck in the oil and then they just start yeah sobbing about the birds yes uh, it's, it's a great it's funny a great and heartbreaking at the same time yes yes nor, nor done always a pleasure to uh to see in a movie and i wish uh we'd get some more to do yes what about um so besides pelicans dying ross what else a, a scene i did not find very funny i was disturbed by that i was disturbed but then it's funny to watch jamie kennedy and both of them just start crying like a little yeah, bit yeah, it's like something to break down, th- just to, to be very clear yes yes uh, also we haven't talked about a gorgeous scene the cinematography yes. on this movie is really striking and um i don't know how you watched it i um this is the first one movie that i've rented from the library that they actually had a blue 
Blu-ray copy of, <laughs> and not just like a you know thirty-year-old DVD copy. And uh, yeah, it looked looked and sounded really good. That bought it. Uh, the Amazon. money put into this. Yeah, I bought it on Amazon. It was on sale, and it was one dollar more to buy it instead of rent it. And I was like, you, you know go. what? There we go. You do that. Uh, uh, but what else? What else stuck out to you as funny? So there, just to just to do two quick things that were honorable mentions for me for this. Um, the scene of the two refugees as they're walking and talking about how they're they were uh, pe- haircut. Uh, that they were barbers and mm-hmm. having this whole discussion about like <laughs> their haircuts and finding Spike Jones's haircut being terrible. I thought that was a very sweet and funny moment. The other is uh, as they are going to this climactic battle at some point and they're going undercover as supposed to be Saddam Hussein is coming to this bunker. Mm-hmm. It when they find that out, they've they've given the warning. They then cut inside the car that Spike Jones is driving with one of the other refugees, and they're just playing "If You Leave Me Now." And it's this very serene kind of thing as they're like pulling. Yeah. If you leave me, I was like, okay, that's great. But yeah. to me, the scene that wins is the funniest, which is also an extremely sharp political commentary. Is mm-hmm. there is a moment in this when they are now tr- with the rebels, they are trying to figure out the way to go get Mark Wahlberg. They need vehicles, and they have come upon this bunker that has a lot of luxury cars mm-hmm. that basically Saddam is hoarding. The person, the uh, the former royal guard who has now basically said, I'm not dealing with Saddam anymore, who's in control of the bunker, is like, yeah, well, you can't have the car. <laughs> like, you need, to, you need to give him. So George Clooney, in an attempt to rouse him and everybody, gives mm-hmm. this whole speech about how George Bush wants you. George Bush wants you. We are all working together. We are all. And he's getting everyone all excited. And it comes back, and the guy's just like, yeah, that's nice, but you still need to pay. And he's just <laughs> like, well, then I guess we're going to have to pay for the vehicles. And it is this kind <sighs> of like bizarro jingoistic kind mm-hmm. of like it's the rousing speech but it's like yeah don't none of this matters because it all comes down to money but right you, but, it all but comes down to it you you think that the iraqis have bought it too because they're all chanting george yes. bush wants us like they're all into <laughs> yes. it and then at the end of it it's like but you need to right like it's yes. still, like, <laughs> it's and still... It's that reminder that that maybe maybe this fight is not about jingoism or patriotism or anything it is all still about money right? it is this constant thing that we keep hearing this idea of it, invoking george hw bush's name a lot during this whether it's the warrants mm-hmm. that they're you know the warrant quote unquote that they're yeah. you know constantly waving around in order to get yes. to places this idea you know that obviously he being the president at the time is the representation of America. And mm-hmm. the idea of America, you know, that also the idea of like the Gulf War tried to inspire them to like, you know, rise up, rise up. But yet at the same token, mm-hmm. it is kind of hollow in the sense of being like, yeah, you guys go do it. Now yes. can we please mm-hmm. just go get what we need and then get out? Yeah. Right. And, and I think is also another one of those scenes that looking at it through 2024 lens also keeps shifting because, you know, the next war, different president, same name, right? Yes. Like, like you could take that scene and transplant it 10 years ahead or 15 years ahead. And yeah, it's going to play it's, the exact uh, same. 
it's crazy. And it is Clooney using, I think, also a lot of the charm that he has. Because oh, he yeah. is. He's charismatic. You, you're you watching this and going like, yeah, we're all mm-hmm. cultures working together. We're all in this together. Yeah. And then it's like the punchline just right there. Yeah. And it's like, I guess we're going to have to pay for the cars. All yeah. right. Well, then, you know. That punchline was one of the biggest laughs that I had in this movie. That Absolutely. It was, it was uh, great. Trip, what about you? What was your funniest moment? <sighs> So I made fun of you for finding dying pelicans funny. <laughs> um, my funniest moment is when they blow up the cow. Um, and it it was like, I want to say this was the trailer for the movie. Like, it was sort of a centerpiece. It's one of the things you remember. Um, and I just, I, I laughed so hard. So it's on their way, George Clooney decides that they need to practice their stealth right so it's we're all gonna get out of this and there's a cow on the side of the road we're gonna pretend that the cow is the gate to the bunker and we're going to sneak past the cow and without anybody knowing get behind the cow and steal the gold right like let's practice this we're not just gonna barge in so they're all sort of sneaking they're all sort of sneaking and spike jones is still on the uh humvee Right, because he's the guy who who runs the the gun and is, is their cover. And the next thing you know, he just blows up the cow, and the cow just explodes, and it goes everywhere. So I will say, I don't think that's what happens. I think the cow just starts moving back and just ends up stepping on a mine. As it's like there, the cow kind of senses that these these people are coming to it, and I think it just walks onto the mine. I think are it just see, backs I, up. Why have I always thought that Spike Jones blows up the cow? I think that you could be right, but the way I remember it is that the cow just starts backing up because they are in, we should also say there's a minefield that's that's basically. Yes. And the minefield will play an important part later on. Yes. Well, I don't know if it's as funny if it steps on a mine, Ross. <laughs> now I'm now I'm <laughs> you're questioning. Now you're questioning what I'm this... questioning my because I think but the cow dying is not what question <laughs> makes you question this. It said how the how the cow how dies. the cow dies because I thought it was a joke, right? So I thought it was a joke on like oh it's not the subtlety, but maybe I've always just misunderstood that scene. I don't know. So um, anyways, it's still a really funny bit yes. because again, of course, it like. Like, it gets in the way of everything that they are trying to do. And the idea that maybe subtlety isn't really possible in, in this war. So it, it also just goes with the idea that, like, they're they're not very good. Like, a lot of the stuff of this movie, their plan is not necessarily a bad plan, but it's also, like, they're not good at executing it. Like, yes. they're, they're not, like, the, this crack team. The three of them are reservists. So the idea of it, and their reactions, too, you know, just... This cow just completely blows up, and they are all covered. And they all start looking, and they're making sure that none of them have been hit. And it's like, nope, it's all cow blood. And then later on, when they're going at the bunker, they're called butchers, because it looks like they've killed all these people. And we know as the audience, no, it's a cow that happened to be on the side of the road. Yes, exactly. Um, You know, it is... It is comical in how the reaction shots of of all of these things. Again, not that okay. we support cow, I, cow death. I am I am watching this again, and it is very unclear to me what happens with the cow. I think <laughs> okay. you can read this either either way. It is 
<laughs> the cowhead bouncing on the uh, car is, I'm sorry, funny for all of my... I'm sure no cows were actually harmed in the filming of this movie. I'd yes. like to believe so, yes. yes. It, it, it does not make it clear. It just... The cow does move a little bit, and then there is an explosion. And so I like to think that Spike Jones blows up the cow. Um, But can I just transition this to my unfunniest scene? Please, please. Um, because is a very similar scene, but with a human. And it is not funny, I think, in a human. And that is the opening scene of the movie Um, is sort of these soldiers out on patrol. They come across a lone Iraqi in the desert. And the first line of the movie is Mark Wahlberg going, are we shooting? Um, and it's a debate of because the ceasefire has just been signed. Like, are they still shooting people? Are they not shooting people? No one really knows what's going on. Um, again, which is a funny idea. You see Mark Wahlberg puts the guy in his scope. He has a gun in one hand, but he is waving a white flag. And then Mark Wahlberg shoots him in the head and kills him. Um, and kills what we're assuming what we're supposed to know right is an innocent man who is trying to surrender mark Wahlberg knows this he saw the white flag um but he still shoots him i understand the purpose of this i understand that it is essential for us to understand the journey these men are going to go on and to set it up but it really bugged me the wrong way when the first thing we see our heroes do is shoot an innocent person in the head um, and then get celebrated for it, right? Then it becomes a, a big deal that it... I wonder if there were other ways to do that that wouldn't rub me that way. I think I think it's interesting that you use the word heroes because I think there's a question of at what point do these people actually become heroes? Yeah. Because again, the... The basic idea is that they are essentially going to try to steal a whole bunch of gold. And uh-huh. just So I, it's interesting that you point that up, and I and I agree with you. I, I mean, look, it's a tough scene. I don't mm-hmm. think the movie agrees with how these characters react to it. So I think that's no. what softens it in the sense of like, you know, I, I think it's meant to be disturbing. I think it's meant to be um, unsettling how mm-hmm. how people react. I think it also goes with this whole idea of these are a group of people who are looking for quote unquote action. Yeah. They want to do something mm-hmm. and they want to fight. They want to the, in this like the way that they've been trained, it's like we have to, you know, this is the enemy. We can't we can we do this and we haven't gotten that. Um it is a tough scene. It is not um it, and I agree with you. It, the point of it is not to be an easy moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um but I think it it is important to remember that up until the moment, it takes most of the movie for them to really become kind of quote unquote heroes. They yeah. are not necessarily great guys. And these mm-hmm. are people that are trying to profit essentially yeah. from from this. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I don't think that's a bad choice. I think it's, it's a necessary one in the movie, but yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, it, it happens at the beginning of the movie and then it cuts to all of them partying to God bless the USA. Yes. And the first about five minutes, I was like, oh God, like what did I misremember this movie? Like looking at it through this lens, I was really afraid of what was coming. And then as the movie went on and I understood how it was deconstructing these ideas, I was along for the ride. But yes. yeah, yeah. It's putting you in a specific mindset because they're like, this is what you, yeah. know, you as Americans believed is what's, you know, kind of the end. This is where we're going to now tra- transition to be like, yeah, that was all a bunch of 
you know. Yes. This oh. movie is this movie is not for the people who are singing God bless the USA along with the characters. Like no. it is, yes. Um for me, the unfunniest thing, which again, I get why they're doing it. it it's mm-hmm. it's there, but it's a lot. There's a lot of racial slurs in this movie that just keep coming up and how casually get used. Mm-hmm. I know that again, just as you said about the opening scene, I know why they're doing it. I know mm-hmm. that it's sadly probably very accurate to a lot of you know uh, things that were being said, and that's mm-hmm. why they're in the movie. Uh, you know. Th- I'm sure it just is one of those things, the amount of times that it gets used, especially in the beginning of the movie, it gets used a lot. Um, Yeah, it's tough. It's bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. but again, I know why they're putting it in there. I will say on the whole, I don't think there's truly anything. Both of us judging by this don't find a lot that like is bad, like jokes that they're actively trying to make that are bad. No, no, there was nothing like that. And I think these are almost more, trigger warnings than unfunniest yes i think you take either of these out and the movie loses a lot of its power right and the movie is definitely versus a whole lot of slurs we have seen in movies this year that are not there to make a point and are not you know condescended towards that definitely so so trip uh our listeners have now heard a lot of us singing the praises of this movie. Uh, But it is now time to talk about what critics and audiences think of Three Kings. So Trip, as we do every week, uh, what do you think is the average critic score on Rotten Tomatoes for Three Kings? I remember this movie being positively reviewed. Like I remember it being well-received movie. And definitely grouped in a lot of those movies sort of of the time, uh, like I said earlier. So I'm going to say that like we're up in the like 70s, maybe like a 75% on Rotten Tomatoes. All right. People get in your guesses now. Trip, this is probably one of the best reviews movie, best reviewed movies we've done. Okay. Um, you are very low, actually. It oh, is ninety-four wow. percent. Okay, wow. Tomatoes. Good good for good for them. So a, a generally yeah. very positive. You know, and uh, just to pull a, a couple of these, Kirk Honeycutt of The Hollywood Reporter wrote, These discussions sometimes fit awkwardly into the grim comedy and bloody battles. Nevertheless, they also add a political dimension to the mayhem, making Three Kings a kind of postmodern Catch-22. Which is interesting since George Clooney would eventually make a version of Catch-22 for Hulu. <laughs> yes, um, exactly. Uh, there we go. Uh, Janet Maslin of the New York Times wrote, In investing this not-so-unfamiliar premise with energy and novelty, Russell experiments nervously with music video camera styles. This is a tactic that can and does wind up inadvertently distracting, which okay. I kind of agree with. I get it. That was one mm-hmm. of my kind of complaints with this movie. But uh, yeah, but in general, uh, fairly po- very, very, very positive, right? Yeah. It was, yeah, and this... I almost want to say, like, this movie suffered from being a 1999 movie because I think it got overshadowed by so much else that it was going against it, you know? I think this comes out a year or two later. It might pick up a couple Oscar nominations or, you know, get in that. Although, looking back, it did win Best Film from the Best uh, Boston Society of Film Critics, um, and it was nominated for Best Picture at the Critics' Choice. And was on the national uh, national board of review top ten, so it picked up some stuff. Oh, it had a Writers Guild nomination um, for best original screenplay. So um, yeah, it, it it picked up a little bit on the the outside there of the 
yeah, a, a words race, but I feel like it might be even better remembered if it wasn't up against all of these other. It was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, WGA, uh, against American Beauty, Being John Malkovich, Magnolia, and The Sixth Sense. That is... Those Outside are of American power, Beauty, that is a... Some powerful films. And American Beauty, I mean, at the time, at the time was all, yes. the, all the attention, you know? Absolutely. But, like, Absolutely. those are the four movies that have, you know, um, some staying power there. Sure. Well, Trip, that's what critics thought. What do you think the good and fine users of Letterboxd, what do you think the average rating is on Letterboxd for Three Kings? Um, I don't know. Maybe we're up in the high threes with this, too. Like a 3.6, 3.7? You are just a little too high. It is a 3.5. Okay. okay. So still. I, I would have thought the really same thing as you going into this. Yeah, I would have thought 3.6, 3.7. Uh, but yeah, mm-hmm. 3.5, which again... It, pretty solid it probably is on the higher range of what we we have covered on this podcast yes definitely um Um, for sure so this movie comes out uh during a weekend that we have covered several times have already covered it came out the same weekend as drive me crazy october 1st okay that weekend it opened at number two now i will say i have seen two different budget figures for this wikipedia mm-hmm. has the budget at 48 million dollars mm-hmm. uh, box office mojo has it at 75 million uh, oh. which is a lot more worldwide though it makes 107.75 mm-hmm. kind of million dollars so it is a hit it does well yeah um financially again the other uh notable movies to come out that weekend besides drive me crazy uh is the adventures of elmo and Grouchland. And a movie that we will uh, be talking about a bit next week, which is Mystery Alaska. Also in the top five that weekend was Blue Streak at four, and Drive Me Crazy and Mystery Alaska opened in the top ten that weekend. So Okay. I was not expecting us to mention Adventures of Elmo and Grouchland, like, week after week after week on this podcast. Slowly but surely, we're trying to get people to understand that this this big big weekend... Yeah, Adventures of Elmo and Grouchland uh, is secretly tying this whole podcast together. Yes. Um, so, so Trip, if people want to pair this, you know, they've enjoyed this movie. Mm-hmm. What is a good movie that you would uh, pair this with uh, for people seeking a double feature? Yeah, there were a lot of ideas that um, that floated around here. Um, but I want to highlight another movie around from around the same time dealing with some similar issues. And that is No Man's Land by Denise Tinovich. Um, it actually it comes out in like 2002-ish. It won the Oscar for Best International Feature that year, or foreign language film, as it was called then. Um, but it is, uh, it takes place um, sort of on the border uh, during the Bosnian War. There are, I, you don't want to talk about it without giving too much away, but they have to sort of call a, a truce, a uh, ceasefire, um, because there are two soldiers who are sort of stuck in the same trench with each other from opposite sides. Um, and it becomes a lot about the ridiculous bureaucracy of like, no one knows what to do in this situation. The UN shows up uh, with a very funny uh, Georges Ciatidis sort of trying to figure out what is going on. It is a very sort of also dark 
comedy, um, but reminded me a lot of this in the way of, like, what really is the point of any of this? Like, at what point do we start to balance uh, human life versus fighting over territory um, and is not nearly as violent or profane of a movie, but uh, definitely, I think, looks at war with the same sort of viewpoint. And another movie I think people do not talk about. Um, I love this movie, and I sometimes feel like I am alone banging the drum for it. So I wanted to put it out there. Uh, I think it would make a really fascinating double feature. Um, and it's available sort of all over right now. Like it's on Prime, it's on Canopy, it's on Tubi, it's on the Roku channel. Uh, I strongly recommend No Man's Land. Hmm. All right. I have not watched it, so I will add that to my watch list. Yeah. I went a little bit different. I went kind of uh, directly something that is <laughs> I cannot imagine that David O. Russell and the people behind this movie had not seen this movie <laughs> just based off of uh, a lot of similarities to it. Uh, and that is 1970 Brian G. Hutton comedy Kelly's Heroes, which is also a war comedy about U.S. soldiers attempting to steal gold. Um, <laughs> this time, however, it is during World War II, and it is Nazi gold. Um, the movie stars Clint Eastwood in, you know, we don't think of Clint Eastwood doing comedies, but there was a time where Clint Eastwood did do uh, some comedies. I mean, again, for a chunk of time, he did co-star with a an orangutan uh, in two films. <laughs> Is uh, the orangutan in this movie? Sadly not. Sadly okay. not. We are we are a couple years away from him doing that. Um, but this movie stars Clint, Clint Eastwood, Telly Savalas. Don Rickles, Carol O'Connor, Donald Sutherland is this group of U.S. soldiers who discover that there is a hidden cache of Nazi gold somewhere, and they decide that they are going to steal it and keep it for themselves. You know, again, it it, it is very clear just from that synopsis uh, why this would be a movie to pair with Three Kings. Um it is definitely a very interesting film. There's a an interesting performance by Donald Sutherland as a character named Oddball. It is it is very much a 1970 movie, but it is kind of a fun and interesting film that might be a, a nice fun way to kind of a movie to pair with this. Uh, one I've never seen, so I just ah. added it to my watch list. Uh, yes, and um, of course we probably should add. I think the movie this most made me think of as you're watching it, Donald Sutherland in 1970 made another uh, war comedy called MASH. Yeah. That, yes, um, he did. I think uh, also uh, definitely has a lot of influence here on, on Three Kings and yeah, would also make an interesting double feature. So um, I didn't recommend it, but there, there you go. If you want something else, huge, huge fan of the movie Mash, and obviously Jarhead was we've already talked about too, yeah, as a Gulf War movie. Um, but Trip, you're looking at Letterboxd, you're seeing those gray stars, you're turning it green. What in the end is your final rating for David O. Russell's Three Kings? Yeah, I I'm going four and a half stars on this, Ross. It really surprised me how well this held up. Um, I, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel going into it, and I was along for the ride. I think, uh, like you said, I think it's uh, maybe one of Clooney's best performances. Um, it might be my favorite Mark Wahlberg performance. I, I really, I was impressed with not the, the, the care that it takes, I think, to really think smartly about this war and all of the people involved in it. So um, I'm going four and a half stars. What about you, Russ? 
So I looked at it, what I had rated before this, which was a very old rating that I think I brought over from Rotten Tomatoes when I used to rate things on Rotten Tomatoes. I had it at four and a half before. I knocked it down to four, if only for the the camera stuff to me just at times was annoying. But you could convince me to get it back to four and a half. I don't think it's like, you know, I'm like in that (laughs) middle zone. Um, But yeah, no, I agree with you. I think this is one of the best movies we've covered as part of this Mm -hmm. podcast so far. Um, I think it absolutely is one very similar to life, I would say, in that it's a movie that is a dramedy. There is comedy, but it's Mm -hmm. a very serious stuff that's being dealt with. I kept thinking the same thing that um, it reminded me a lot of life in that I don't know how funny this is, but it definitely uses comedy in a good way. And if we hadn't already gone over the hour, Mark Ross, um, I would bully you into getting it up to four and a half. Again, um, it wouldn't take much. We have, it wouldn't take we have much. other stuff to do. So, yeah. So uh, what what are we uh, talking about next week, Ross? Well, next week, Trip, we are doing another one of our double feature episodes. Uh, okay. We will be talking about Lawrence Kasdan's Mumford, as well as the what I've already mentioned, Mystery Alaska. Both okay. movies uh, are available for rent at the uh, usual lovely places that you can find, whether it's at mm-hmm. Amazon, Apple TV, or YouTube, or you could see if they're at your local library, because we here at A Trip Through Comedy support physical media and local libraries. We so Trip, do. do you have any knowledge outside of what I've now just mentioned about either of these movies. Okay, Mystery Alaska is like a small-town hockey thing, isn't it? Like Correct. Where yes. it's like a um, small town, and they have a hockey team, and I think the hockey team like excels more than they expect, and I don't know, maybe they go to like state hockey or, or something like that. I don't. That's all I really know. Russell Crowe maybe in that? Correct. Um, yes, and so, uh, of course, this is the year Russell Crowe kind of at least I started to recognize him from um, uh, The Insider. So, of course, yeah, a big year for him. Um, Mumford, I have no idea. So um, I'm kind of hoping maybe um, it is also like a small town, but it's like an Irish small town movie. And there is uh, like a dad who sings Irish folk rock songs and he has some sons and maybe they also start to sing Irish folk songs and uh, become become a successful rock band. I, I don't know. That's all That's all I can think of when I hear the title Mumford. I, I appreciate like, that you somehow retconned this movie to being like a a an origin story for the band Mumford and Sons. <laughs> you say the word Mumford, Ross, and what else do you think of? I like, mean, true. I, and it by is the way, true. Like, pro, uh, pro ten, Mumford and Sons band. Ten, ten years before they became a thing. <laughs> yes. This Lawrence Kasdan, did you say, directed this? Correct. Uh, was yes, yeah, so yeah. I'm sure that has nothing nothing to to do with it. So, uh, but if it's Lawrence Kasdan, I'm sure it will have a uh, large ensemble of actors I like, and um, I do tend to really like Lawrence Kasdan uh, stuff. So I'm I'm curious to see uh, to see what he brings here. So. Yeah, I don't know much about Mumford. I haven't seen it. I have seen Mystery Alaska. I am a, a sports fan, and okay. so uh, I I did I do remember liking Mystery Alaska. Um, But I'm interested to uh, revisit it. So we will see that. But until then, Trip, where can people find you on the lovely interwebs? 
Um, I am sort of all over the interwebs, Blue Sky and Letterboxd, especially at TripBurton13. Uh, you can find me there. Uh, I also keep uh, listed information about the show on my Letterboxd. You can go there uh, to sort of see what we've recommended or what we've thought of these films. Yeah. Um, you can find me on the uh, website formerly known as Twitter, uh, Letterboxd, Blue Sky Threads, um, at R. Bratton. And uh, also, where can they find the show? You can find the show uh, at the same places, uh, especially Instagram and Blue Sky at ATTCPod. You can also email us at a trip through comedy at gmail.com. Remember, Trip has two P's. And we love reading emails. Our theme music is So Alive Instrumental by John Worthy Music. You can find his work wherever you listen to music or at the Free Music Archive. And as always, we will see you farther along down the road. What is the problem with Michael Jackson?